just when you thought that there weren't enough nuclear things to worry about, you learn about EMPs, electromagnetic pulses that can be caused by a nuclear detonation in space. And then you hear a genuine nuclear expert tell you about the impact of such an event. And he says... If one of these nuclear weapons were to be fired off over, say, Ohio, in, at about 60 or 70 or 80 miles high, so essentially a satellite comes over Ohio, fires off a nuclear weapon in space, it would take out every nuclear power plant from the Chicago area all the way over to the East Coast. And they wouldn't just shut down, but they'd be unable to cool down. And what happens then is that, you know, you wind up with 60 Fukushimas because there's all of the circuits that turn the pumps on and turn the pumps off and pump the cold water in to keep these nuclear reactors cold are immobilized from this stun gun in space. Well, when you hear that one nuclear explosion in space can basically take down the U.S. grid and, with it, the ability to cool nuclear reactors, you begin to see yet another way that you and I and everyone else are in that uncomfortable seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we learn about electromagnetic pulses and what they can do to the power grid, and with it, the cooling systems for nuclear reactors. We talk with Arnie Gunderson, Chief Engineer at Fairwinds Energy Education, and Robert Manning from NuclearTerrorToday.org. We'll also get a little booster shot from Susie Snyder of Don't Bank on the Bomb, reminding us as to what we really can do to cut back on and eliminate nuclear weapons. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than appeared in all the Memorial Day parades combined. All of this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, May 28, 2019, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Continuing our coverage of the radioactive contamination found at the Zahn's Corner Middle School in Piketon, Ohio, the Scioto Valley Local School District has announced that the building will remain closed and classes will be moved elsewhere at the start of the next school year. Contamination by enriched uranium, neptunium, and americium were found at the school, which is only 3.8 miles or a four-minute drive, this according to MapQuest, away from the Department of Energy's Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant, 
which once produced enriched uranium for nuclear plants and U.S. nuclear weapons programs, and is still highly contaminated. The site is currently going through demolition, a process which is known to re-release radionuclides into the air and the dust. And prevailing winds blow from the Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant towards the school. An air monitoring station across the street from the school detected Neptunium in 2017, but that information was not released to Superintendent Todd Burkett until March of 2019. Burkett admits that he's frustrated he wasn't alerted by the problem for more than a year and adds that very little is known beyond the initial reading of Neptunium, including how often the station is monitored or if there have been more positive tests since 2017. The positive test led a community member to pay for an independent evaluation inside the school where both swabs tested positive for enriched uranium. This new study was referred to on last week's Nuclear Hot Seat number 413 and was conducted by Dr. Michael E. Ketterer, who is Professor Emeritus from the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff. Nuclear Hot Seat has been in touch with Dr. Ketterer, who at this time has declined an offer for an interview, but he did say, quote, I wish to point out that one. The work was conducted at Northern Arizona University, where I am Professor Emeritus. Two, all of our work was conducted voluntarily and pro bono in conjunction with a volunteer community contact. We did not accept any funding from any party. We paid all of our own expenses at NAU and performed this work as a public community service. There's more from Dr. Ketterer, and I will share that on a future nuclear hot seat. A class action lawsuit has been filed on behalf of the students and faculty at Zahn's Corner Middle School. And as part of the fallout from this circumstance, the Department of Energy's nuclear cleanup boss, Ann White, is either stepping down from or being forced out as head of the Department of Energy's Office of Environmental Management. Meanwhile, DOE says its own air monitoring has shown only quote-unquote trace amounts of radiation, what they say is far below the risk to human health. This is the Neptunium-237, americium-241, and enriched uranium that has been found in and around Zahn's Corner Middle School. That statement of DOE, of course, plays to the ongoing lie by the nuclear establishment that so-called low levels of radiation have little to no effect on human health. But it does have impact on human health, and we will have a supporting interview on Nuclear Hot Seat within the next two weeks as we continue to cover this major story. And now... Nuclear Hot Seat Nuclear Hot Seat Nuclear Hot Seat None that's out of week Ah, San Onofre. Always good for a laugh. The Nuclear Regulatory Commission has given approval for Southern California Edison to continue moving spent nuclear fuel from wet fuel pools to dry storage in casks that are only five-eighths of an inch thick, and they're only 100 feet from high tide at the Pacific Ocean. Sounds like a blast, doesn't it? And even better, even though it will not explode and give us that kind of a blast, 
Each canister is meant to hold a Chernobyl's worth of radiation. That will be a total of 72 Chernobyls on the Pacific coast, just south of Los Angeles and north of San Diego. Mm-mm-mm. The fuel transfer was stopped last August 3rd after a 50-ton canister filled with a Chernobyl's worth of highly radioactive waste got stuck on a tiny rim near the top of an 18-foot deep vault where it was supposed to be entombed. Workers didn't realize that the sling supporting the canister's massive weight had gone slack and it hung there unsupported for close to an hour, in danger of dropping, which would be the equivalent of a semi-trailer smashing into a solid brick wall at somewhere above 20 miles per hour. Last November, the NRC laid the blame squarely at Edison's feet with a tap on the wrist saying that it, oops, fell asleep at the switch and that the near-drop resulted from inadequate training, oversight, and supervision. Nothing about the thin-walled canisters, the proximity to the ocean, the possibility of flooding, and saltwater corrosion on the stainless steel containers. But none of that bothered the NRC, and they're actually trusting that Edison says that they are putting in a new visual inspection system, Explain what that means. Some guy walking around with a magnifying glass looking at only what he can see. They're also saying they're going to have independent analysis of the maximum depth of the scratches. And all of this led to the conclusion that they do not pose a safety concern. There, there, Missy, don't worry your pretty little head about it. Yeah. Along with Holtec International, the waste storage contractor and manufacturers of the tin cans they're putting a Chernobyl's worth of radiation in each one, Edison says it has created, quote, a more robust program. How about more robust canisters, like the ones in Germany, which are at minimum 9 to 17 and a half inches thick? U.S. Representative Mike Levin from San Juan Capistrano which is virtually adjacent to San Onofre, said, It is troubling that the NRC's decision relied on data provided by Edison, a company with an incentive to resume loading as quickly as possible. The NRC's decision-making process requires a greater degree of independence to best serve the public interest. But wait, isn't the NRC supposed to operate in the nuclear industry's interests? Because that's what it seems that they do every frickin' time. The details behind the NRC's whacked-out reasoning will be discussed at a, quote, virtual public meeting from noon to 1 p.m. on June 3rd. People can register for the webinar at nrc.gov, then submit written comments and questions. That is just bad theater. Everyone knows that the NRC ignores any questions it doesn't want to ask. Last time they did one of these dog and pony shows, a bunch of us were on the call and we kept in typing on live chat what our real questions was. And every single question that came from a person who knew what they were talking about was completely ignored by the panel from the NRC. And all this lunacy is summed up well by Charles Langley of the watchdog group Public Watchdogs, which says, It is troubling that the NRC is inviting public comments after they have made their decision. We are so disheartened by the failure of the NRC to enforce the law that we believe it needs to be replaced root and branch by a different agency that is capable of protecting the public and enforcing nuclear safety laws. Hear, here. And that's why 
Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and all of you dolts and fools who are saying, sure, go ahead, bury highly radioactive nuclear waste on the beach in thin-walled canisters close to mean high tide while the climate catastrophe unfolds and keeps raising the level of the ocean. Yeah, you guys, you over there, you at the NRC are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of the week. The battle to revive efforts to store nuclear waste at Yucca Mountain in Nevada has been opposed by the state's voters, legislators, the Western Shoshone people who own the land upon which Yucca Mountain was placed without their approval. And now, Governor Steve Sisolak has reiterated his opposition to the project. He stated on April 26, I am totally opposed to any legislative effort to restart the Yucca Mountain project. My position and that of the state of Nevada remains identical to the position of Nevada's past five governors. The state of Nevada opposes the project based on scientific, technical, and legal merits. Otherwise known as, hey, what part of no don't you understand? The cooling towers at Vermont's Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant are slated to be demolished before this fall as decommissioning gets underway. Asbestos abatement at the cooling towers is in progress. Nuclear and asbestos, who knew? And the towers are expected to be gone by September. Then there's only the problem of all that radioactive waste. A story from last April, wherein the Department of Defense announced Project Dilithium. How Star Trek can you get? The project involves shipping small portable nuclear reactors by air, land, or sea to military bases where they're believed to be needed. So-called experts suspect that the plan would work and that there's nothing inherent to the process of putting a nuclear reactor on a plane that would cause a disaster. But the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists argues that the small reactors that can be built with today's technology won't give the DOD the easy plug-and-play power source that Project Dilithium calls for. Rather, introducing a nuclear reactor into a war zone might be, you know, kind of dangerous. Edwin Lyman, a physicist and the acting director of the Nuclear Safety Project at the Union of Concerned Scientists, wrote... If commanders need to expend significant resources to protect the reactors or their support systems from military strikes, such reactors could become burdens rather than assets. The portable reactors that would be shipped around the world as part of Project Dilithium, should it ever happen, would be powered by highly enriched uranium, the same kind of fuel that could be used to make nuclear weapons. But hey, what could go wrong? In Japan... It's been a month that the J-Village National Soccer Training Center in Fukushima Prefecture resumed full operation, eight years after it was converted into an operational base to cope with the nuclear disaster that hit the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plants. The facility has already been selected as the starting point for the Japan leg of the 2020 Tokyo Olympic torch relay, set to begin in March of 2020. All part of the planned juggernaut to normalize the perception of Fukushima as safe when there is medical and scientific data to show that it most certainly is not. In South Korea, a nuclear reactor that's thermal output exceeded safety limits 
was kept running for nearly 12 hours when it should have been shut down manually at once. Furthermore, the South Korean Nuclear Safety Commission said that an individual who was not licensed to operate the reactor was holding the control rods, which regulate the reactor's output at the time. A continuing increase in output could have led to a thermal runaway, potentially causing the reactor to explode. Can you say Chernobyl? South Korea's Nuclear Safety and Security Commission found evidence that Korea Hydro and Nuclear Power, the public company that operates the country's nuclear reactors, had taken inadequate safety measures and violated the Nuclear Safety Act. It is likely that the company will be slapped with administrative measures and may be held criminally liable as well. In forward-thinking Switzerland, a Swiss-led study has calculated the potential effect of nuclear meltdowns on the health of people living nearby. Its focus is on how meteorology and geography would influence the movement of a radioactive cloud, and they discovered that if there were to be a serious accident at one of Switzerland's nuclear reactors, many of the radiation victims would be residents of other countries, because, let's face it, radiation knows no borders. The country currently has five nuclear power plants, which fall somewhere between Fukushima and Chernobyl in terms of size, and includes the 50-year-old Beznau-1 in North Switzerland, the oldest nuclear reactor in the world. In 2017, the Swiss voted to gradually phase out nuclear power and to ban the construction of new nuclear power plants. As I said in the beginning, it's a forward-thinking country. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, Nuclear Hot Seat works hard to get you the nuclear news that matters, not only before mainstream media, but often without any mainstream media coverage at all. We've been covering cutting-edge nuclear stories for eight years now, eight full years, providing a one-hour hit of honest nuclear information every week. We present interviews with genuine nuclear experts, knowledgeable activists, a roundup of international news, even though I prepare many more stories than actually make it on the program, numbnuts of the week, bad puns, sometimes even a touch of musical theater. Where else can you find all this in a weekly counterbalance to the nuclear industry lies, propaganda, and government cover-ups? Here's the amazing part. This show has been operating for all these years on a less-than-bake-sale budget. And that budget is dependent entirely upon you, the listeners, to keep us going. So if you appreciate our cutting-edge information on nuclear issues like Zahn's Corner and like EMPs, help us keep getting you this news. Yes, that's right. We're asking for a donation to help us cover our operating costs. We make it easy for you. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. That's where you can send a one-time donation or set up a monthly donation of any size. And to send us a monthly $5, the same as you would spend on a cup of coffee, you can provide part of the lifeblood that sustains this show. To donate $5, just click on the big green Donate button at NuclearHotSeat.com and all the prompts will lead you to the right places. Please do what you can now, and know that whatever you do to help, I'm deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Here's this week's featured interview. 
It seems there's always another nuclear danger to discover. And this one's a doozy. Electromagnetic pulses, or EMPs. We talk with Arnie Gunderson, chief engineer at Fairwinds Energy Education, and Robert Manning of NuclearTerrorToday.org about what EMPs are, what they mean, and what we can do to motivate change while it's still possible. Please note that I initially got EMPs and EMFs confused, and while I've corrected many of the mistaken places, I may have missed a few. So if you hear me say the F instead of the P, just do a mental substitution when you hear it. Arnie Gunderson and Robert Manning, thanks so much for being with us this morning on Nuclear Hot Seat. Hi, Levy. Thank you for having me. Yes, Levy. Thank you for having me also. First of all, explain to us what EMPs, electromagnetic pulses, are and what causes them. I've been struggling with a, a way to explain that for a long time now. But it's uh, basically, it's like a stun gun being shot from space at the Earth. It can be caused by either a nuclear weapon fired in space or by a, uh, a particle storm that comes off the sun. But basically, if you think of a person being hit by a stun gun and becoming immobilized, this burst of energy, either from the bomb or the sun, hits the Earth and has a similar effect. What makes EMFs different from other forms of nuclear radiation, and why are they so dangerous? It's an electromagnetic pulse. It's an EMP. And they, they, there's three types of, of pulses. The one we're all familiar with is a lightning strike, and that's called an E2 pulse, you know, where you, uh, energy hits an electric line and you'll see sparks even in your house. But the other two are more significant in part because we're not doing anything to prevent them. Years ago, 1859, there was an electromagnetic pulse that hit the earth from the sun. And this guy, the scientist named Carrington, noticed the sunspot and put together the fact that the sunspot had thrown out all of this energetic particles that hit the earth. So we call that thing the Carrington effect. So when the pulse of particles from the sun collides into our atmosphere, it makes the electric wires have much more voltage than they would otherwise. That's really bad for big transformers that you see on the side of the road. You can you'll burn out big components just because they have an extraordinarily high amount of, uh, of voltage that hits them for a long time. These Carrington uh, voltage fluctuations back in 1859 lasted for two days. So it's enough to fry the entire electric grid. We don't usually think of EMPs as having a relationship to nuclear bombs, and yet there's a definite danger there. Explain what the problem is. A similar phenomenon happened back in uh, the 1960s when the United States just testing fired a nuclear weapon off in space. They fired it off 900 miles away from Hawaii at night, and they, uh, they knocked the Hawaiian electric grid off. So a pulse of electricity came through from the bomb that, uh, that, that knocked uh, the electric grid down in Hawaii. Shortly thereafter, the Russians tried the same thing in, uh, in Kazakhstan, 
and they knocked electric power plants off the grid that were three and four and 500 miles away from the detonation in space. So it's a different type of pulse than a solar storm in that it happens really, really quickly. In milliseconds, it, it, the voltage goes up and boom, the voltage comes back down. And that means that for big components like the transformers on the side of the road, they really don't notice the pulse. But for little components like all the integrated circuits in your computer, they're fried. So you know, if it were to happen now, and a lot of scientists and, and military specialists are becoming more and more concerned about these electromagnetic pulses, EMPs in space, especially because we've become so reliant on integrated circuits. Uh, if it were to happen now, it would knock out cell phones, it would knock out your personal computers, the major switching stations around the country. And unfortunately, it would knock out the safety systems inside a nuclear power plant. The uh, federal government thought this was so uh, serious that all of the major departments that would be affected, you know, the Department of Defense, Homeland Security, CIA, Energy, Scientific Branch, all of them created a task force. And there's a report that they created, and it's called the Electromagnetic Defense Task Force 2018 Report. It's over 40 pages long. So we have uh, edited that down to two and a half pages. But the point of that is what I'm referencing here is that they gave the report to POTUS and he issued an executive order on March 26th of this year, 2019. That uh, executive order is very specific in what these department heads are to do. And the first step they're to do is the wording is you shall provide me a report on the electromagnetic spectrum threat to the United States. That is due by July 1st. If they consider it pretty serious, I think we should too. We will of course have a link up to that two-page summary so that people can look at it. So what's evident is that there is a threat that comes from EMPs it is serious enough that the federal government is looking at it and is supposed to be getting us information, or at least getting it to the, the White House. What, if anything, can be done to protect us from the impact of EMPs? It sounds like this is something that we have no control over. All we can do is take a defensive stance. What I basically got out of the report and the uh, executive order is that it's going to take time. It's going to take time to build up appropriate defenses. They use the wording that goes across the whole spectrum of warfare, air, sea, land, everything. And it's going to take time to correct it. They don't really say how long it's going to take. I think there's two pieces I'd like to mention there. First off, the uh... Department of Defense and the other agencies that are looking at this are only worried about the federal infrastructure, you know, the, our ability to respond to an attacker. They're not looking at the nuclear power plants that are owned by mere civilians. 
And um, if one of these uh, nuclear weapons were to be fired off over, say, Ohio, in, at about 60 or 70 or 80 miles high, so essentially a satellite comes over, over Ohio, fires off a, a nuclear weapon in space, it would take out every nuclear power plant from the Chicago area all the way over to the East Coast. And they, they wouldn't just shut down, but they'd be unable to cool down. And what happens then is that, uh, you know, you wind up with uh, uh, 60 Fukushimas because there's all of the circuits that turn the pumps on and turn the pumps off and pump the cold water in to keep these nuclear reactors cold are immobilized from this stun gun in space. From an area from Chicago to the East Coast, we could have 60 meltdowns if an adversary were to fire off an electromagnetic pulse at um, about 70, 80 miles high. Is this like just, just a particular pulse or this would come from detonating a nuclear bomb? Well, the solar electromagnetic pulses have a record of happening about every 150 years. And the last one happened more than 150 years ago. So we're due. As a matter of fact, the, there was a uh, coronal mass ejection that fired off a pulse and it missed the Earth. The Earth had just passed through that part of space 12 days before. Now, this just happened a couple of years ago. So we're flirting with disaster from a, from a solar electromagnetic pulse right now. You know, one of the reasons we have these satellites that watch the sun is to detect these solar electromagnetic pulses as they're, as they're coming into the Earth. In theory, uh, you could get a presidential directive to shut down the grid and separate out the transformers and throw switches. And uh, America could go black for about a day, and that would prevent the massive damage to the infrastructure. Then they could turn it back on, and you know, of course, there'd be significant problems, but nothing that would last for years. If we don't do that, the uh, damage to the transformers could easily mean that we'd be in a blackout for 10 years. And they talk about 80 or 90% of the people in those areas dying because of either it gets too cold and they freeze or unable to refrigerate. You know, the, how many things count on electricity? So that's the solar electromagnetic pulse. And of course, nuclear plants are, are, are subject to that pulse, but likely the biggest impact on a nuclear plant from a solar pulse would be that there wouldn't be any diesel fuel to keep the, uh, the power plants cool. They represent a danger because if you run out of diesel fuel and you can't keep the nuclear power plant cool, you've got a Fukushima in your hands. The, the weapon in space is different because, you know, hopefully an adversary doesn't do it, but you, you never know. And, and we certainly have adversaries with missiles and bombs, and that's all you really need. That would destroy the infrastructure inside the power plant, all the integrated circuits, everybody's laptop, you know, all of the switches that turn the pumps on and off. And uh, within hours, you would have you know, 60 meltdowns if, uh, if the, the nuke in space were properly placed. The, the problem is, though, you know, the presidential directive is saying that uh, uh, do something about it. Well, nuclear plants are already prohibitively expen expensive. And 
they can't do anything about it without spending a boatload of money. So if we really took a, um, uh, an electromagnetic pulse from a bomb in space seriously, the solution is to retire all the nuclear plants now before it happens, because we really can't afford to fix them. Is there any protection from EMPs possible? And if so, what would it take to put that in place? Or are we just sitting ducks for this stuff? You can harden a nuclear power plant. You can harden your house. You can, you know, you can harden your car. But the cost is prohibitively expensive. Now, the Department of Defense can harden a missile silo and, and likely should and perhaps has. But they're, they're isolated and just assuring our adversaries that if they hit us, we're going to hit them back. You know, unfortunately, it's a lose-lose. And if you get a, a, a fanatic who really doesn't care, who knows he's going to lose anyway, you may as well get the first shot off and take us out as well. It wouldn't be good for him because retaliation would be massive. But at that point, if 80 or 90% of Americans die because they don't have electricity and 60 nuclear plants are melting down, it would be devastating to the United States as well. Speaking purely as a human being alive on the planet Earth right now, this is terrifying information. What, if anything, can be done about it? To me, it's going to take a multi-approach in regards to uh, solving the problem. One of them would be detente. That's just one now, and uh, probably a lot of people don't even know what detente means. But it was fairly effective during the first Cold War, which lasted from 1947 to 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed. And we came close to nuclear war. The most severe time was the Cuban Missile Crisis. And after that, there was uh, three others. One in the uh, Soviet Union, 1983, was Stanislav Petrov, where he didn't follow Soviet Union protocol. The computers were telling him that the Soviet Union was being attacked. He chose not to believe that, so we were saved. In the Cuban Missile Crisis, it was uh, within 24 hours. President Kennedy and Robert McNamara were, uh, within the next 24 hours, were going to launch an attack on Cuba. What they didn't know until after everything was all said and done, that the Russian troops that were on Cuba had tactical nuclear weapons and they were ordered to use them if they were attacked. So they didn't know that. And they also didn't know that uh, two Russian submarine commanders refused to fire. They each had one nuclear torpedo. They refused to follow uh, orders and uh, launch those torpedoes. What uh, Arnie was talking about in regards to the president and Congress, let's not leave the Congress out. All of them need to come to their senses. This is, you know, we're heading down a path here like we're sleepwalking and it's insane. This is a nonpartisan issue. It's for independents, it's for Democrats, it's for Republicans, it's for all of us. And so what we can do individually, the most powerful thing you can do as an individual is write a handwritten letter. Their congressional representative and their two senators. 
But beyond that, they can form delegations. Most people belong to a church or some kind of a club in regards to going as a group. And talking to your congressional representative and your senators, and I don't like to use the word uh, demand, because psychologically, in my opinion, if somebody demands me to do something, that shuts me down. Challenge them. We are here to challenge you to have hearings in the House, in the Senate, to create new treaties, to create funding for starting to harden both civilian and military. Like Arnie said, more than likely, they're taking care of the silos, ICBM silos, and the, some of the basic military hardware to strike back. But there's, there's nothing for the civilian part. In fact, one thing comes to mind to me in reading that report, task force report, that uh, they did an investigation in regards to uh, local army bases. And they leave the whole thing out in regards to electromagnetic pulses or spectrum. They leave it out of their planning because it's so difficult to handle and they don't have the money. Ernie, is it possible with funding, with Congress, with hearings, do you believe it is possible to come up with any kind of a defense or a hardening, not only of weapons, but of the civilian infrastructure to be able to resist the damage that could be done by EMPs? Of course it's possible. We, uh, the, the military does harden uh, individual installations at great cost. But when you evaluate the cost to harden a nuclear power plant or, um, or to harden New York City's water system or any of those, the costs become astronomical, which is why, and I think Robert's right on the mark, we've got to get back to relying on treaties and, and reduce the number of nuclear weapons that can be used. I think if, if reasonable people realize that you could destroy 90% of Americans. If a single nuclear bomb were detonated in space, that should get uh, policymakers' attention. They could spend the money, but, but frankly, I think it would be astronomical in a significant fraction of our gross national product. Whereas if we commit to, uh, through treaties, eliminating the threat, I think that's a, a lot easier way of solving the problem but well, we've got to get back to the Gorbachev kind of people who are who we negotiate with. And, and frankly, we've got to get, you know, this was Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev sat down and, and negotiated some treaties that lasted for a long, long time. Nobody's going to win this war, maybe. You know, I think Einstein said, I don't know uh, how the third war will be fought, but the fourth world war will be fought with bows and arrows, you know. This will throw us back into the, uh, the dark ages. And while there are individual technical fixes, they become so astronomically expensive that uh, our policymakers refuse to go there. The right solution is to, uh, as Robert was saying, is, uh, is to begin a negotiated process to walk away from this threat. So what are some of the steps that we as individuals can take? Yes, writing to legislators, yes, asking them to take steps, but is there anything further we can do to put ourselves on the line for what we believe, which is we need to find a way back from this edge that we're at? 
We've created a one-page paper, nuclearterrortoday.org, in regards to detente. We've created a one-page example of what's happened in the past, and some of it was positive. There were agreements created, believe it or not, it was started by President Nixon in 1972 in regards to multiple agreements were created. And a positive thing that came out of all of that was no more testing in the atmosphere or the oceans, which is a big thing. Okay, what's happening now since January 20th, 2017, is the total opposite. We're withdrawing from treaties and agreements. As of August 1st of this year, August of 2019, we're gonna be putting intermediate range missiles ballistic missiles in Europe. And Russia's responding by putting the similar, similar type missiles in Russia. So Moscow will be 10 minutes from Europe and Europe will be 10 minutes from Moscow. So the time to respond is ridiculous to analyze, to make sure it's not a, a, it's a fake attack or no attack or a real attack, whatever. What I'm trying to emphasize is that people really need to do what we've been suggesting here. It's not playing games. It's not gonna go away. It's not gonna go away. So what we need to do is join together and challenge our representatives and senators and president to get with it for us, for all of us. It seems like there are so many different ways for nuclear annihilation to happen. And this is a stunning new awareness, certainly to my thinking about the problem. You're right. It's insane. Now, as a society, we worry about the great asteroid shooting through space and wiping out the Earth. And uh, I think they've even authorized NASA to uh, come up with a plan that we could knock an asteroid out before it hit us. So that's a one in 60 million year phenomena, whereas the electromagnetic pulse from the sun is a once in 150 years and the potential that an adversary could knock out all the electric grid on the East Coast, it has got to be greater than one in a thousand. So here we're worried about this asteroid coming at us when in fact there's some real serious problems right on our doorstep that we're choosing to ignore. We've been bringing up about detente and contacting your congressional representative and your senators. And there's another way that actually you, Libby, brought to my attention. That's an organization in Europe that has had some success. Right. That's Don't Bank on the Bomb that is based in the Netherlands and has had tremendous effect in helping individuals, banks, and pension funds pull out their investments from 28 companies that have been identified that make component parts for nuclear weapons. And we featured that two weeks ago on Nuclear Hot Seat number 412 from May 15 of 2019. And we'll link to that on the website. I'll also have a brief rundown of that from the head of that organization, Susie Snyder. But it has been very successful in pulling the money out from major pension funds in the world. And we need to get that going here in the United States because it's another way to cut down on nuclear weapons manufacturing. And Robert, your website, your group, Nuclear Terror Today, 
also has not only a very impactful one-minute video about nuclear weapons on the site, nuclearterrortoday.org, but there's also a pledge. Tell us about the pledge. Yeah, we've done a, a lot of research on all of this, and people sign petitions right and left. You know, you could have a million people sign a petition, and more than likely, most of the time, it doesn't have an impact. But if you have a pledge, the pledge is uh, much more important than a petition, and there's three challenges, and the three challenges are no nuclear weapons attack or EMS attack. As far as nuclear weapons are concerned, believe it or not, China and India have committed to that for years. No first nuclear weapons attack. So that's the first challenge. The second is take all ICBM missiles off hair trigger alert. This really doesn't cost them anything. It doesn't cost any of the nuclear armed nations anything to commit to those two. The last one is the most important, in my opinion, and that is to create treaties and agreements with unannounced inspections. Unannounced. It actually, we have a history of that working. It worked for two years with the Iran Accord. The Iran Accord was created by all the nuclear powers except Israel. And they had representatives from the European market represented. All together was 35 or 36 countries that helped create the Iran Accord. It worked for two years until this administration came in. And how it worked was that International Atomic Energy Agency professionals came in unannounced and found them to be in full compliance every time, 10 times in two years. We have a history already of something working. There really is no excuse, in my opinion. You know, I'm old enough to remember the duck and cover days when uh, we had to hide under our desks in high school from, from a nuclear weapon. And uh, I, I think most of the people alive on, in the U.S. right now don't remember those days. I'm, I'm sure most don't because I'm old. But really, when you walk around Chernobyl and Fukushima and, and Hiroshima and Nagasaki, this is still just as real today as it was back you know, in the 50s when I was hiding under my desk in grade school. We've got to get to the leaders of this country and make them understand that this threat is just as real today and, and just as devastating. I mean, one weapon in space can knock out 90% of America forever. And no one seems to be listening. And, and thank God you are, maybe that's uh, with deep appreciation that uh, I am um, encouraged that we're Absolutely. covering it. Yeah. Well, we need to do something for the future so that we can guarantee that we actually have a future. Well, this has certainly been a lot to think about, uh, perhaps a bit to get drunk about, but only temporarily. <laughs> and then get back to work, because as I say on the show every week, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. And with this interview, it has just heated up some more. So I want to thank both of you, first of all, for the work that you have done and that you continue to do on behalf of all of us and also for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. And we thank you too, Libby. Thanks, Libby. I'm going to drink that beer while the refrigerator works and it's cold. (laughs) (laughs) 
you gotta laugh when and where you can. That was Arnie Gunderson, Chief Engineer at Fairwinds Energy Education, and Robert Manning of NuclearTerrorToday.org. We'll have links up to both websites on the Nuclear Hot Seat website, and we will also include direct links to two videos produced by Fairwinds, one each on EMP disaster potential caused by nuclear weapons in space and the disaster potential caused by a solar storm. Finding out that Robert Manning only learned about Don't Bank on the Bomb from me, and that was during prep for this interview, I realized that there are still a lot of people who don't know about this program, even within our community. So I decided to provide a brief refresher course. Nuclear Hot Seat did a full-length interview with Susie Snyder, the head of PAX Netherlands, which launched Don't Bank on the Bomb. We did that on Nuclear Hot Seat number 412 from May 14, 2019. But I first met Susie at Dr. Helen Caldicott's Symposium on the Dynamics of Possible Nuclear Extinction, which was held in March of 2015 in New York at the New York Academy of Sciences. I caught up with Susie for only a moment, but she provided a 90-second synopsis of how any one of us can help get rid of nuclear weapons. You have a great way for people to take action against nuclear weapons that can genuinely make a difference. Give us the short version. It's amazing. It's called Don't Bank on the Bomb. And that's the website, too, don'tbankonthebomb.com. Step one, find out if your bank invests in nuclear weapon producers. Step two, contact your bank. Tell them you don't want them to. Step three, tell the world what the bank says. And if they don't get rid of investments, go public because no bank wants to look like a bad guy. It takes one or two people only to make a huge difference. And that can cut off the money stream to the companies that make nuclear weapons. You and I, we have more power than we think. And that power is sitting in our wallet. And how can people find out whether the companies that we're told the bank is supporting have any connection with the nuclear weapons industry? Well, we do a, a significant investigation every year. Now, it's not completely exhaustive, but we profile 28 companies that have association with nuclear weapons modernization and maintenance. And it's on our website, don'tbankonthebomb.com. And we really, really want people to use our information and contact us all the time. You can do that in, you know, through the website really easily. Contact me on Twitter, whatever works. And I'm happy to find out more. And if you find out, learn about more companies involved in nuclear weapons, tell us. We'll do the research and we'll make it public for everybody to use. Love it. Awesome. Susie Snyder of PAX Netherlands with the short version of Don't Bank on the Bomb. You can hear much more about it on our recent full-length interview by going to NuclearHotSeat.com, episode 412 from May 14, 2019. And, of course, we will link to it on the website for this show. Activist shout-out! Congratulations to Dr. Heidi Hutner of Stony Brook University for her just-published article in AEON.co, Nuclear Power is Not the Answer in a Time of Climate Change. She publishes widely on ecofeminism, nuclear issues, toxics, and climate, and presently she is both producing and directing the documentary film Accidents Can Happen, The Women of Three Mile Island. Good to see you in print yet again, Heidi. And our condolences to the family and friends of Gary Shaw, 
who passed last week after battling cancer for the last few years. Gary was one of the principal players responsible for getting Indian Point in New York scheduled to close. Gary is being remembered for his gentle wisdom, grassroots activism, and fearlessness. Much love and light to Jeannie D. Shaw, his longtime partner, their family, and all the activists involved with Indian Point. He's going to be missed. Here's today's final thought. I don't know that I have ever been thrown as much by any nuclear hot seat interview as I was by this one on EMPs. It just seems so ultimate. It's like our planet has been mined with deadly explosives, all interconnected, and we're just pretending that a match will never come along to light the collective fuse that will blow life as we know it to smithereens. Clearly, there is no way forward with nuclear that will not, inevitably, lead to catastrophe. That's why it's up to us, we as a people, to lead a retreat from our nuclear stance, immediately and non-negotiably. Turn down the push to build them, shut down the ones we have, figure out solar-powered and wind-powered and genuinely renewable-powered sources for any energy needed to run safety systems while we figure out what the hell we're going to do with all that nuclear waste. Yeah, I know. This is really a hard sell. There are so many personal and environmental issues to be concerned about, and the business powers that make money off of them have no intention of giving up their cash cow, even if it destroys the planet. For some reason, they think money makes them immune to the consequences of their actions. And by the time they discover that it doesn't, it will be too late for them and us and everyone else. Still, you gotta do what you can do, and there are actions to take. If you're feeling depressed when you hear this information, know that in psychology, it is well known that the way out of depression is by taking action on those things you fear the most. So, if you're afraid, please, get over it. Do so by making a call to a legislator, writing and mailing a letter to them, organizing an informational talk in your neighborhood, and booking a speaker on nukes. That's something I'm available to do as often as possible. Know that everything that you do, that we do, counts. All of it. Now, whether this ultimately works or not, that's another story with an ending that we cannot know. As I read in last week's final thought, a quote from Michel Foucault that has really stuck with me. People know what they do. Frequently they know why they do what they do. But what they don't know is what what they do does. So don't worry about the outcome. Just take an action. And while you're at it, Love deeply. Laugh whenever you can. And keep listening to Nuclear Hot Seat, because information is power, and we who oppose nuclear need all the power we can get. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, May 28, 2019. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from Nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, miningawareness.wordpress.com, Beyond Nuclear International, 
the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN. AEON.co, Reuters, OhioChannel.com, ColoTV.com, Futurism.com, NewBloomMagazine.net, JapanTimes.co.jp, SwissInfo.ch, English.Hani.com, TheBarrensObserver.com, Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility, DurhamRegion.com, GlacierHub.org, France24.com, LiveScience.com, PublicWatchdogs.org, and the misguided, short-sighted don'ts and fools at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. I live not far from San Onofre, and I think they're insane or bought off or mentally brain-dead, one or the other or all of the above, to have allowed loading to resume on those thin canisters, each with a Chernobyl's worth of radiation in them. Thanks to all of you for listening, and a big shout-out with gratitude to Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world in 123 countries on six continents and counting. If you haven't already done so, go to the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook page, like it, share it, respond to a post, and I'll respond to you as soon as I see it. If you'd like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, it's easy. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down for that yellow box, put in your first name and your email address, and you'll be sent an email to the latest show as soon as it posts. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. You can try on Facebook, but truly, the email is a better way to do it. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to send a donation of any size to NuclearHotSeat.com. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2019, Libby Halevi and Heartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. Just list my name, the name of the show, and the website. That's it and the content is yours to use. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that luck is a terrible safety plan when it comes to nuclear anything. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.